Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel again. It's still the 1st of August 2021 and I'm doing a third episode of the new Brighton Victorian Seaside Resort. I'm ploughing into the bush quite fast, not I it seems. But I've got a, I've had a day off and um, I'm alone on this Sunday afternoon, late afternoon now. So we've got plenty of pair time to explore the book. And what a lovely book it is. Okay, so <clears throat> we're up to chapter two. Well, it's not that many chapters here, really. What does it? Wait a minute. Oh, um, I did read the contents in the beginning. Um, there it is. Yeah, I didn't put chapters to it. But it's one, two, three... With the introduction, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13, or 12 chapters, you could say. So, the second one, anyway. New Brighton Begins. So, here we go. So, chill out. I'll put some nice um, meditative oceanic sounds in the background to go with the seaside feel. Okay, so, yes, New Brighton begins. The birth of New Brighton. James Atherton's prospectus, entitled Eligible Investment at New Brighton, Cheshire, stated that several gentlemen proposed to build a hotel and establish a ferry to be called the Royal Lighthouse Hotel and Ferry, which would have steamboats operating. The estimated cost would be £12,000, the sum to be raised by shares of £100 each. The, <coughs> the prospectus pointed out that views of the Welsh Mountains, Orm's Head and the, and the Isle of Man could be seen from the site. It had a beautiful beach with hard, clean sands. The villas were to be erected together with a church marketplace, shops, buildings, including a post office. The prospectus was dated October 1832 and the it was intended to attract nobility and gentry rather than the working class. Atherton's dream of every house having interrupted views of the sea began to take shape when a number of villas were built on Wellington Road. His son-in-law, William Rosen, also played a huge part in the establishment of the new area. <clears throat> Instead of keeping the name of Rock Point, they decided to call the new district a new name. It was to be like Brighton in the south of England. So this became New Brighton. In a short period of time, New Brighton went from a small fishing hamlet to a complete new town with a population of some 6,000 by 1880. It was the popularity of trains and ferries that would see New Brighton become a popular resort. Then we've got James Atherton, the man who shaped New Brighton. <clears throat> I've got a picture on here. And that's the picture in, our, in the local pub uh, of him. 
there as well. James Afton was born at Ditton, near Widnes, in 1770. Born to William and Margaret Atherton, James was the eighth of ten children, six boys and four girls. His father, William, 1732 to 1807, was a yeoman, or yeoman, was a yeoman uh, farmer and from the time of his marriages to James's mother at the adjoining village of Farnworth in 1755 William spent most of his life occupied in husbandry at Ditton Margaret too came from farming stock and her father Thomas Houghton Houghton? H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N was a yeoman farmer by nearby Prescott Little is known of James Atherton's early life and education. However, with a large household and no great wealth in the family, his father left a moderate £800 in his will. It seems probable that James spent his adolescence on the farm at Ditton with his siblings. There was certainly little future prospect for him as a farmer, being the youngest of William's six sons. Thus, it seems probable that James had made the short story to Liverpool by the time he reached his early 20s. The most positive reference to James Atherton's early life occurs in September 1792 when he married Betty Rosen of Grappen Hall Parish Church near Warrington. This indisputable record gives us the clearest indication yet that he had already been drawn to the thriving port of Liverpool. As details from the marriage license confirm his association with the town and those who give his occupation, which is recorded as a grocer, Gore's directory for the year 1796 places this early venture in the heart of the old town of Pool Lane, later South Castle Street, and the same source verifies Atherton's occupation. The newlyweds appeared to settle quickly in Pool Lane and their first child, a daughter named Mary was baptised at St Nicholas Church, Chapel Street. Liverpool, just over one year later, in October <coughs> 1793, by 1798, James and Betty had produced two more daughters, Margaret, born in 1795, and Elisa, born in 1797. The business, too, seems to have been quite successful that the following year, the young family moved a short distance away to more spacious premises in Dale Street, where, in the same year, Betty gave birth to a fourth child, a son, christened James, after his father. In keeping with the common practice of most businesses in the 18th century, Atherton, who was by now describing himself a merchant, lived on the job and he fixed a link with these Dale Street promises, which... In purely professional terms, he was to maintain for the remainder of his life. In addition, it was also about this time that Atherton is believed to have become more closely involved in the overseas trade. According to R.F. Mould, M-O-U-L-D, in his book, The Iron Church, which promotes a short history of St. George's Church, Everton, Atherton was an active shareholder in shipping companies and was also said to have flirted with the slave trade by purchasing a principal's share in a slave ship by the name of Irene. 
However, there appears to be very little evidence available to support the latter claim. James Atherton's name does not appear upon lists of the company merchants trading to Africa for the late 18th and or early 19th century, for instance. While it is also worth remembering that the propensity to associate almost every merchant in 18th century Liverpool with the vile trade and human cargo can sometimes be rather unfairly exaggerated. Another Atherton, John Atherton, is listed, yet he appears to be unrelated to James. Still, exclusion from these records does not necessarily prove or disprove James Atherton's possible connection to slavery. As Cameron and Crook's Liverpool Castle of Slave Trades publication have rightly indicated, slave trading ventures were usually organised by a partnership of between two and a dozen more individuals. Similarly, sleeping partners, whose involvement was limited to the investment of some of the finance and the corresponding share of the profit, could easily disguise their interest. Suffice to say, therefore, that James Atherton's involvement remains uncertain. What is certain that the Parliamentary Bill for the Abolition of Slavery received royal assent in March 1837? And, whatever the extent of his former mercantile activities, by that date James Atherton was preoccupied with concentrating most of his efforts towards development of land and property at the west end of Everton Village. At the beginning of the 19th century, <clears throat> the population of Liverpool was continuing upon its upward spiral at a quite alarming rate, and thus James and Betty Atherton's attention was directed towards the desirable prospect of Everton for the first time. A contemporary description of Everton Village from the year 1800 gives indication of the scene to which the family aspired. A pretty village with a view which embraces town, village, plain, pasture and river. A sunset. At sunset, the windows of the houses of Everton brow flash back the glowing radiance showing that nothing impedes the wide prospect westwards. Hence, James Atherton departed the city in 1803 and removed his growing family to Everton Village. The move coincided with the birth of the Atherton's second son, William. Four more children, Charles, 1808, Caroline, 1809, Henry Regent, 1811, and George, 1815, followed within the next 12 years to complete the family. At the time of his move to Everton, Atherton was 33 years old. <clears throat> it would prove to be a crucial transitional period when the former farmer's boy, grocer and merchant entered into the razor-sharp competitiveness of land and property dealing. Initially, Atherton purchased a large tract of land belonging to the St. Domingo Estate. He then built his own house on the high ground near to the old Everton Beacon and commenced with the layout of a new street close by. A contemporary of Atherton's, Robert Syers, that's S-Y-E-R-S, had described in his book A History of Everton, published in 1830, of the erection of several handsome mansions and delightful villas in his street, which Afton called Albion Crescent, 
a name he would later reproduce in one of New Brighton's first streets. These houses were snapped up by men of a similar ilk to Atherton, leading merchants who had compatible social aspirations and who were equally determined to desert the restrictive and unhealthy conditions predominating in the city centre. The success of Albion Crescent enabled Atherton to lay out further new streets on his land such as Northumberland Terrace, York Terrace and Grecian Terrace, that's there. G-R-E-C-I-A-N These particular street names still survive in Everton today albeit with vastly different types of property to those of Atherton's day The pinnacle of this development was St George's Church designed by the architect Thomas Rickman and built by John Clegg on the years 1912 and 1814 on land donated by Atherton RF Mould in his history of St George's, records that the sum of 11,500 was necessary to build the church. This was obtained by the issue of 115 shares of £100 each, with no shareholder allowed to purchase more than 10 shares, and James Afton was one of the only two people to purchase a maximum quota of 10 shares. Afton's own house was situated directly opposite St George's in Northumberland Terrace, and the family continued to reside in this house until their move to New Brighton in the early 1830s. Mould goes on to provide a very interesting account of the proximity of these two buildings which vividly portrays Atherton's significant influence in Everton at the time. As a condition of the land he donated, Atherton stipulated that no funerals at the church or persons attending them shall enter or retire through the western gale of the churchyard without express permission of James Atherton or his heirs. And this provision was duly incorporated into the 1813 St George's Church Act of Parliament. In 1823, Atherton had officially retired from business at the age of 53. He had acquired gentleman status and, in the process, had become a very wealthy man. His achievements during the previous 30 years, from the modest start of the grocer's shop in, in Pool Lane, had been impressive by any standards and were marked by what J.A. Picton described Atherton in his Memorials of Liverpool, published in 1903, as an ardent, bold and daring character. Everything he undertook was carried out on a scale of magnificence, being always occupied with a variety of schemes for improvement and progress. On a similar note, Sires described Atherton as a man in 10,000. It may truly be said of him that he was born to be busy. <coughs> it is from such accounts of Atherton's character that one began to understand why his retirement was so short-lived. In 1830, James Afton, in association with his son-in-law, William Rosen, began negotiations with John Penkett, Lord of the Manor of Liscard, to buy a large section of land at the northeastern end of the township. Effectively, his successful government of Everton represented a blueprint of his subsequent plans for New Brighton, albeit on a smaller scale. When Atherton left uh, Everton Village, it was being described in the following terms. 
Everton now abounds with handsomely walled pleasure grounds and well-enclosed fields, and is conveniently intersected with admirable roads, most of them well-paved, and many of the parapets are flagged for two-thirds of their breadth with admirable, well-laid, strong flags. The village's population had increased almost tenfold since James Atherton's arrival. He was a highly respected member of the local community and the pillar of the church. He was wealthy enough to sit back and enjoy his retirement in comfort. Yet, at the age of 60, he was prepared to take a major chance and speculate in a new and much larger project in the wilds of Cheshire. One considers what went through the mind when he made his decision. Character references have shown that Atherton was an astute, astute businessman with an eye for profit. <clears throat> and the land adjoining the Black Rock had enormous potential. But there may have been less tangible reasons behind his reasons. Firstly, Everton was beginning to experience the first signs of an encroachment from the city centre. The growth which had engulfed the old town a generation earlier had begun to reach the townships away from the river. Ultimately, Everton's dis- distinct individuality would be swallowed up by a tide of terraced housing advancing up the slopes to the village. Secondly, there is evidence of a more profound nature. The last decade of Atherton's tenancy at Everton was clouded by personal tragedy. James and Betty lost three sons, James Jr., Charles and Henry Regent. Over a few years age of each other at the age of 19, 21 and 20 respectively. The death of a child is particularly hard to bear for parents, but their son's individual deaths at such young age ages sorry, must have been devastating for them, for them both. In such circumstances, Everton may have held too many painful memories for the family. Taken separately, these events may not have been enough to influence Atherton's decision, yet put together there seems a very strong possibility that they precipitated the move precipitated the move to New Brighton. On 24th of January 1832, William Rosen advanced a deposit of £200 to John Penkett on account of the purchase of the New Brighton estate. The sum represented £100 each for himself and James Atherton. A fresh start and a new chance lay ahead for the two men, but before the main plans were laid, James Atherton died in 1838. Before his death, he chose to be buried back at St George's Church with his children, James, Charles and Henry, who died before him. His wife, daughter Caroline and family plus others are also buried there. Next up heading, uh, New Brighton, Fort Perch Rock, we're looking at. During the early 1800s, the various merchants and others of the area fought the port of Liverpool 
should be guarded. And when the old perch rock light was washed away, the authorities thought of the idea of having a fortified lighthouse or having a fort which would contain a lighthouse. It was finally agreed to have two separate constructions at a meeting held on the 25th of March 1825. The fort covers about 4,000 square yards and is constructed of mainly red sandstone which came largely from the Runcorn quarries. It was floated down the Mersey and unloaded when the tide was out. Because the stone was soft it had to be left to be weathered. The walls were originally 24 feet and 29 feet high, but these, in some cases, were heightened to almost 32 feet, facing the rear side and the towers 40 feet high. The fort had a slipway with three arches, uh, with drawbridge and a Tuscan portal bearing the coat of arms and the words Fort Perch Rock. It was it was cut off at t- high tides from the mainland. The fort built on what was known as Black Rock stood guard at the mouth of the river, shipping, pass- shipping passing 950 yards from the battery. The fort was armed with 18 guns, of which 16 were 32 pounders, mounted on platforms. Six were placed on the west front, two on the east and four on the north. Single guns were placed in the towers and along the angles. There were two small guns facing the causeway. There was accommodation for a hundred men, with officers' quarters and kitchen. There were also storerooms and magazine in the centre of the courtyard at a sunken level, with a hand hoist for lifting the ammunition. We've got a picture here of Perch Rock Battery, New Brighton. In the early years, the guns were smooth-bore cannon, and the balls had to be heated in a furnace until they were red-hot, and then shipped to the guns for firing. The idea being, when they scored a direct hit, they would set the enemy's ship alight and set off their powder. The fort would have a practice from time to time, when the local fishermen would gather the cannonballs and return them... To the fort, receiving payment for them. The fort was nicknamed the Little Gibraltar of the Mersey. As the rock channel slowly became silted, the larger ships ceased to use it and it became necessary to equip the battery with larger guns capable of reaching the range. Point, um, reaching the range. 64 pounders were installed as a result and these were mounted in granite. The old 32-pounders were kept to guard the rock channel, which was still being used by the smaller ships. The 4th Cheshire Company of Artillery Volunteers was established after holding an open meeting to set up a local corp. On the 31st of January 1860, the new Brighton Company was started, and it was not long before they had 60 men under the command of Captain Henry D. Henry D. Gray and his staff. Their uniform was dark blue, with right facings, and in full dress they wore a Bubsby. B-U-S-B-Y, Busby. I've got another picture here of the fort, with people outside. And the structure to the left that I don't recognise. 
At a later date, the corpse became known as the First Cheshire and Carnarvon Artillery. Then, soon after the turn of the century, they joined with the First Lancashire Artillery Volunteers, forming the Lancashire and Cheshire Heavy Brigade. The MO at the fort was Dr J.W. Lloyd, whose son, Selwyn, became Foreign Secretary. In the Second World War, the unit became the 420 Coast Regiment, until they were disbanded in November 1960. When the Royal Artillery was stationed at the fort, there were three officers and 101 men. In 1943, there were two officers and 28 men. And finally, one officer and eight men. As a maintenance unit in April 1944. After the war, it had one officer, one master gunner and two other ranks. Whilst the territorials were there, they had one officer and 28 men. The Home Guard also had a spell there. There's a picture here with with the sea surrounding it, with crashing waves. And it's gone right round the fort. The fort controlled the Mersey Division submarine miners in the late 1800s. They used to lay mines both at sea and on land. Some of the men employed in the task were members of the Wallasey Ferries. In 1893, the battery was dismantled and the guns returned to ordnance. The following year, two 4.7 quick firing guns were delivered, but due to a change of plans as regards the second fort being built, they were installed at Seaforth Battery on the opposite side of the river. Perch Rock was to have three six guns installed. At the same time, the Royal Engineers took over the fort and remodelling was commenced. The parade yard was no longer needed, as the infantry had left in 1858. It was partly filled in with sand and rocks from the beach and covered. The pits were constructed for the naval guns, which were mounted away from the walls, and these were lowered so the guns could have a close range of 150 yards. Electricity was available from a new engine room. The maximum machine guns at the fort were installed in May 1893. The six guns arrived in December 1897, but it was not until March 1899 that they were fully installed and ready for action. Some ten years later, between 1909 and 1910, further alterations were carried out, and Mark Mark VII guns were installed. When these were brought to the fort, the drawbridge was strengthened to allow for the extra load. Over the next few years, searchlight towers and an observation tower were built. At the outbreak of the First World War, the War Office decided to remove two of the six guns, one of which was later returned in 1923. Finally, the armament of the fort was two six guns and two machine guns, which remained until 1954. The drawbridge was removed in 1935. The modern concrete tower was used to house the radar, which was added in 1941. But this was not the only modern invention at the fort, for as early as 1895, the rangefinder system operated with a lens of either tower. 
they could determine the distance in a way similar to that in a non-reflex miniature camera. During the Second World War, the fort was made to appear as a sort of tea garden from the air. The letters T-E-A-S were painted on the roof of one of the buildings and the outer portion was painted green to give the effect of a lawn. In wartime, the fort went into action only twice in its entire history. The first was on the outbreak of the First World War, when a round, fired, when a round was fired across the bow of an approaching Norwegian ship under sail, which failed to obey a signal from the fort. It was at the time when territorials were at the fort, under the command of Major Charles Luger, who was the local dentist. He ordered a warning shot, which was way off the mark, as the gun was elevated too much. It landed in Crosby, on the opposite side of the mouth of the river. They fired again, only to hit the bow of an Allen liner at anchor. The first shell landed in the sand hills and was found by a resident, who took it to the Seaforth Battery, where the officer placed it in the mess room with the words, A present from New Brighton. The captain of the Norwegian ship thought they were just having a bit of fun. He did not know that war had been declared. And there's a picture here of one of those firing artillery machines in the fort, within the fort. The second occasion the fort went into action was again on the outbreak of war on September 1939. A fishing smack came up the rock channel which had been closed. Colonel Charles Cox, the battery commander, ordered two shots to be fired across her bows from number two gun. The owner of the fishing smack was ordered to pay £25 for each round. The fort was dismantled in 1954, a caretaker appointed, and in 1958 it was put up for sale, having been offered to both Liverpool and Wallasey corporations. It was sold by auction in 1958 for £4,000. It was used for a number of years as a source of pleasure centre. But the council objected and after the storms of 1975, it was again put on the market. The next owner, with the help of the Manpower Services Commission, restored it to something like its original 1826 design, removing tons of sand from the old parade ground and made the magazine into a museum of the Warplane Wreck Investigation Group. picture here, looking above it with roofs, uh, looking at the structures within, and we've got in bold underlined text, the New Brighton Artillery Volunteers, and then again another one, Liverpool Mercury, Monday the 27th, August 1860. Um, the 4th Cheshire, New Brighton, Artillery Volunteers commenced firing practice on Saturday afternoon last at the Rock Perch Battery. And the 5th Cheshire, Birkenhead Artillery Corps, under the command of Captain Laird, attended by invitation to witness the firing of their comrades in arms, by whom they were afterwards hospitably, who afterwards hospitality entertained. 16 fi uh, five rounds of blank cartridges were fired, namely two rounds with intervals of three quarters of a minute, one with intervals of ten seconds, 
one with intervals of 8 seconds and one with intervals of about 2 seconds. And the manner in which the guns were handled called forth the admiration of the regular artillerymen in charge of the fort. The spectators included a large number of ladies and gentlemen living at at New Brighton and in the neighbourhood, for whose gratification the band of the 5th performed several pieces of music during the evening. Here of of um, people on the ground and people on top of the fort. Now we're looking at uh, Perch Rock Lighthouse. We have a picture of what would have been the wooden lighthouse before. The granite lighthouse that we can that I can see out my window every day. <laughs> Perch Rock, New Brighton Lighthouse, sits next to the fort. It was originally a wooden perch, hence its name. A large post held a light on top and was supported by a sort of tripod. It was erected uh, on the Black Rock in 1683 by the Liverpool Corporation goes back, doesn't it? That's 1683. Wow. When foreign ships passed the old perch, they were charged expense for its respect and to keep it in repair. But it was often washed away and the boat had to be launched to recover it from Bootle Bay. In February 1821, the pilot boat, Liver, crashed into the perch and carried it away. It has been said that it was washed away in March 1824 and not recovered until the December. However, the cost of replacing it all the time grew too expensive and it was decided to build a new one. The foundation stone of the new lighthouse was laid on the 8th of June 1827 by Thomas Lidderdale, Mayor of Liverpool. It was designed on the lines of Eddie Stone by Mr Foster and built of marble rock from Anglesey by Tomkinson and Company. It rises 90 feet above the rocks and is considered to be a masterpiece of craftsmanship. The granite cost 1 stroke 6d a cubic foot. Each piece of stone is interlocked into the next. The whole stonework was, when finished was coated with what is known as Puzzolini, Puzzolini, Puzzolani, Puzzolani, P-U-Z-Z-E-L-L-A-N-I, a volcanic substance from Mount Etna, which, with age, becomes rock hard. The first 45 feet is solid. A spiral staircase leads to where the keeper lived, and then on to the lantern house. The revolving light was said to be the first in the country. It cost 27500 to construct. And there it is, a picture of it in its full glory. Work was only possible at low tide and it was not completed until 1830. Its first light shone on the 1st of March of that year and consisted of two white flashes, followed by one red with a range of 40 miles. The light was 77 feet above the half-tide level. It was eventually electrically connected to the mainland. 
got another ship here in the lighthouse with a cruiser behind it. And then uh, bold letters in underlined. Liverpool Mercury, 20th of November, 1870. Inquest at New Brighton. An inquest was held yesterday at New Brighton by Mr. Churton, Corona, on the body of John Green, aged 50, keeper of the Rock Lighthouse, New Brighton. It appeared that the unfortunate man, about 10 o'clock on Monday uh, night, last ascended the ladder for the purpose of examining the light. About 10 minutes afterwards, he was found lying insensible on the balcony by his assistant. He was at once conveyed to his home at New Brighton and Dr. Mushet was called in, but he died on the following day. A verdict of accidental death was returned. John Green. Excuse We've got a picture, a photo of the uh, lighthouse, uh, a recent one. The lighthouse last shone its lights, light on the 1st of October 1973, as it was no longer needed on account of the radar system operating in the river. A local architect purchased the lighthouse for £100 on condition he maintained the construction. He tried to restore the lantern again, but the river authorities thought it might cause confusion to local shipping. So he refurbished it so that anyone could stay there for a short holiday. Indeed, it was their idea to attract newly married couples to spend part of their honeymoon there at a cost of £50 a day. With champagne and flowers thrown, thrown in. With electricity being introduced, the old lighthouse has a galley with cooker and refrigerator and on the first floor, a bathroom with shower. There is a living room and a bedroom on the next two floors. The lighthouse even had, has a television, just in case one gets bored of looking at the sea. A ladder has to be obtained from the fort to gain the necessary height to reach the 15 iron rungs of the lighthouse as the door is 25 feet from the base. Next subheading is the Liscard Battery of New Brighton. In the 1750s, the corporation in Liverpool decided to move the powder magazines, used to store explosive and shot from ships in port from their site in Clam Street and find a more isolated site them on the Cheshire side of the River Mersey. Accordingly, a suitable plot was purchased on the south bank of the Mersey at Wallasey and a new magazine constructed. They were renovated and enlarged in 1838 and 39 and were still in use until 1851 when it was decided that in future, explos- in future explosives would be stored in hulks further up the river at the Bight of Sloan. That's B-I-G-H-T Sloan as S-L-O-Y-N-E. The move was probably prompted by safety concerns, the land around the magazines having become much more built up. In 1858, a battery was built on the site, and the imposing gateway with its crenulated towers, crenulated, that's a nice word, C-R-E-N-U-L-A-T-E-D, crenulated, survived to this day, as does the perimeter wall which now encircles several houses. Facing the south wall of the battery, on the other side of the wall, magazine brow, are several cottages, perhaps dating from the 17th century. These were probably first inhabited by fishermen, but it is thought that they were later occupied by officers from the battery. 
So yeah, we've got pictures of Bliskar battery. Yeah, wow, that's amazing actually. You see, it's, it's like looking at the front of a castle, the gates of a castle. Two turrets there. Yeah. And, the, and there's one, uh, wait, don't we see the, you don't see the battery, but just beside the battery, there's a whole horse and cart. The magazines were often referred to as Liskard magazines, and the fort as Liskard Battery. But the name Liskard later became attached to an area about a mile away, where Wallace's main shopping area is situated. A quaint circular dwelling may be seen about 50 yards from the fort's gateway, this being known as the Round House. Now forming part of a private residence, this was once occupied by the Battery's Watchmen. Further along the magazine, are situated two public houses, the pilot boat and the magazines, the latter having been built in 1759 and once used by sailors who were having their outward bound ships reloaded with munitions at the Liskard magazines. We've got a picture here, looks like the, uh, no, the, the tower in the Everton you know, uh, football club logo. Like the, the person, isn't it? That? Yeah. Anyway, this impressive structure, which is still partially standing, is one of the great landmarks of the area. Nestled between Magazine Lane and Magazine Brow, the old structure kept watch across the River Mersey as an additional line of defence against all manner of seaborne threats. Britain was just coming out of the Indian colonies mutiny and was strengthening its defensive position, especially for the supply lines of shipping. The River Mersey was already protected by Fort Perch Rock, but it was decided to build another structure which could train its guns on all vessels within the Mersey. A spot at the river's edge in New Brighton was selected. The area was just opposite the now dismantled powder magazines. Work began in 1858 on the project and the large fort was completed, uh, built from locally quarried heavy red sandstone. The fort was an impressive defensive structure capable of holding uh, seven 10-inch guns and a small detachment of the 55th Royal Artillery. We've got a picture of Magazine Brow with Liskard Battery, Wallacey, Will, by Harold Hops. We've got more pictures. Oh, I've seen that step, yeah. I'm taking a picture of that step. Like, uh, where you go past a wall and you can see some steps going on that wall. Yeah. Hmm. And another one of those, the, looking at the gate, the turret. In those days, the gunners of the fort would have wore a smart navy blue flock, frock, sorry, as opposed to a full-dress tunic. Each of the uniforms had a red stripe down the leg, complete with brass buttons and smart black shoes. The officers at the time would have worn a white belt and sash. When the fort was first constructed, the men's headwear, headwear would have consisted of fur busby hats. This was later replaced in 1878 with the blue cloth covered helmet, complete with spike, which was again replaced in 1881 with a ball. The fort's most cunning feature was not it not knits uh, I don't know if that's meant to be not it but it says knits the fort's most cunning feature was not knits 
thick walls or heavy artillery, but simply its location. The fort stood at the water's edge, slightly set aback, but completely hidden by a variety of foliage. From the river, the fort was not visible until it was too late. By that time, it would be within firing distance. This earned the Liscard Battery the name of the Snake in the Grass. Fortunately for the local residents, the fort was never fired against by any enemies, and as time drew on, the fort became obsolete without conflict. In 1912, the fort was sold to the Liverpool Yacht Club, and over the years, it had fallen into a sorry state of repair, resulting in its demise. In addition to many to this, many houses now occupy the site, both inside and outside of the fort's walls, as the photo above describes. The houses opposite the fort still stand, and they also play a part in the history of the Liscard Battery. The officers from the fort lived opposite in the red sandstone house. Many of the houses along the road are extremely old, one even dating to 1747. The outline of the battery is still visible today, and is one of the many remaining features of Wallace's past. And we've got the next subheading, New Battery on the Cheshire Coast. And then uh, subheading in bold, underlined, Cheshire Observer, Saturday, 10th of March, 1860. Whilst there is so much talk about the defences of the port, it is not a little, a little singlet that that no notice has been taken publicly of the construction of a small but very powerful battery on the sea coast of Liscard, just completed. Immediately below the site of the old powder magazine, this may arise from the fact that the battery, which is in Barbetti, B-A-R-B-E-T-T-E, is semi-massed in character, and the passengers to New Brighton by the boat see nothing but a plain wall and innocent grass mound where they are placed in position under proper protection and in working order seven of the largest side guns in Her Majesty's service and whose concentrated fire would sink the largest ship afloat. The works which have been very quietly conducted have been two years in progress but the armament has only recently been completed. About 20 of the militia artillery from Liverpool being taken over to assist in the mounting of the monster guns. The Liscard battery, which can in no sense be called a fortress, is however enclosed by a substantial stone wall, quadrangular, quadrangular in form, of no great thickness or height, but with a low tower at three of the corners, and one at each side of the gateway. The wall, which is of red amended, and there is a small window or lookout in each of the towers. There is a barrack accommodation inside, and not the most superior description, and not the most superior description, for about 30 gunners. But the place, of course, will never be fully occupied except in case of a positive danger. A winding earthen parapet, parapet serves as a shelter for the guns, which are placed on two tiers of different elevation, four on the upper and three on the lower. Some idea of the size of the guns may perhaps be formed from the fact that they weigh about 88 CWT each and that they are 10 inches in diameter at the mouth of the bore. They are also of considerable length, being in fact rather long howitzers than guns. 
Witwers. Like most other ordnance for coast, river and harbour defences, they are intended for shells, grape and canister, rather than solid shot. They are of size sufficient for the projection of a hollow shot weighing 87.5 pounds. The guns are mounted on traversing platforms, which describe sufficient of a circle to admit of the whole of them being brought to bear upon one object. And the power of concentrating the fire, added to the size of the guns, gives to this small and otherwise insignificant work a character really formidable. The North Fort, which lies almost immediately opposite on the Liverpool side, is quite commanded by this battery. It certainly mounts more guns, but they are of less calibre. They could only be concentrated to a very limited extent in this particular direction. Two guns, at the most, being brought to bear, whilst the whole seven of the Liskar battery could rain destruction upon the North Fort. This being so, the startling fort naturally arises that there is nothing to prevent a battery which could inflict such damage on Liverpool's side from being taken in the rear. In case of hostile invasion, a land force would be absolutely necessary for its protection, and certainly commodious barracks could be found in the old magazines immediately above, which now which appear now to serve the use only of barns to a neighbouring farmer. This Liskar battery is completely finished with stores comprising the latest form of shell and every new mechanical appliance, and waiting only the complement of gunners who would be speedily brought from Chester. It is readily for action at a minute's notice. On dit that the rock or perch will shortly pulled down and a new battery in Barbetti, in Barbetti uh, constructed in its stead and that abandoning the idea of the North Shore at Liverpool as unsuitable in many respects. The military authorities have been surveying various sites on the Birkenhead side to find a suitable open where the artillery volunteers of the district may be exercised in throwing up earthworks and practising their guns. Next subheading, New Brighton Promenade. Promenade. I think best saying promenade. Promenade you can say, but promenade. Promenade! We've got a picture straight away of the magazine Promenade, New Brighton. Until 1891, the riverfront was open to the shore. The only built-up area, sorry, the only built-up are as being the ferries. If a traveller on the river prior to this period looked toward Wallasey, he would have seen mainly eroded clay cliffs supported by a large masonry wall, 1858 to 1863. It was impossible to pass directly from Seacombe to Egremont via this route. At the Guinea Gap, there was an actual hole in the cliff in which the tide had carved out a large hollow. From Egremont to what is now New Brighton existed only private properties occupying the foreshore. We've got more pictures here. I've got the promenade, floor pavilion, the battery, New Brighton image. And another one. Uh, what are we looking at here? Hmm, can't work that one out actually. Trains, but the Seacombe, maybe this is the Seacombe being the Seacombe uh, Ferry being 
as you showed them. The Seacombe, New Brighton Promenade, was completed in stages in 1901. New Brighton Ferry started in 1906. In 1931, work started on building a seawall to Harrison Drive, uh, Wallasey Village. Even by today's standards, an ambitious project. Included in the project will be an embankment 130 feet wide, 46 acres of public gardens, a marine lake for model boats, open-air bathing and subsequent roadways. With the exception of the public gardens, it was completed in 1939. Got another picture here of grand, grand houses and the sand going up, you know, sand hills. And another one of, like, on the coast, big block bricks. The land between the railway and the promenade was left untouched due to the arrival of World War II. In fact, nothing was done to this area at all until the 1990s when developers got their greedy mitts on it and built luxury apartments. More revenue for the council and no layout in costs. <laughs> and that's that commission mark there. The Home Guard, Dad's Army, were located at their HQ in the School of Art. In fact, some of the guards were enlisted as students too. Got a picture of Victoria Gardens and Pier, uh, New Brighton. Hmm. Sorry, enjoying the image of the picture here. Uh, brickworks dispute on the promenade. Uh, that's in bold underline. Liverpool Mercury, 7th of December 1877. Works and Health Committee. The committee had been in communication with the Walsey Brick and Land Company with reference to the closing of the foot road between Ergamont Ferry and Manor Road Slip by the company. Uh, no terms had had been come to and it was recommended that the opinion of Mr North solicitor should be taken should be taken on the subject subheading uh, well not subheading it's just the underlined bold underlined uh, text Liverpool Mercury 8th of December 1877 Ooh, just notice we've got a cruiser uh, going past us here hmm. just got a little tugboat going behind it and off it goes somewhere we don't know. Anyway, Liverpool Mercury, 8th of December, 1870. A brick making company whose workers are situated between the Ugamont Ferry and the Manor Slip, having stopped the footway adjoining the sea wall. The Wallasey Local Board have apparently determined on vindicating the public rights, and on Thursday night, between 6 and 7 o'clock, the obstruction was removed by them. Yesterday morning, the brick-making company re-erected the barrier, which was again pulled down yesterday afternoon on the authority of the local board. It is stated that on both occasions, the services of the Wallasey Fire Brigade were called into requisition, and having laid the hose along the wall with a full-pressure water, they were prepared, if necessary, to meet with a plentiful supply of cold water any attempt to interfere with the performance of their duty. We understand that no resistance was made, the attempted obstruction has excited considerably, considerably feelings in the locality. Feeling considerable, considerably feeling on the like maybe considerable feelings in the locality, and great satisfaction expressed at the prompt and vigorous action of the authorities. 
Liverpool Mercury 10th December 1877. The stupid and dangerous course adopted by the brick-making company of Hugomont in opposing by force the determination of the authorities to keep open the roadway abutting the sea wall north of the ferry resulted in a great popular demonstration on Saturday, accompanied by scenes which raised the liveliest apprehensions of a formidable riot. On Thursday and Friday last, uh, the company erected barricades across the roadway, and these, as previously reported, were moved by the authorities. During Friday night, however, the company constructed two formidable barricades, protected by trenches filled with water, and made other preparations which unmistakably indicated that active resistance would be made to any attack upon them. The likelihood of a row caused an immense gathering of people in the neighbourhood early in the afternoon, and a number received large accessions as the fire brigade, in brass helmets and carrying their usual implements, mustered in the vicinity of the ferry between 2 and 3 o'clock. At this time, Inspector Hindley and a body of fine stalwart policemen, while among the crowd were officials and several members of the local board. Some formal requests to remove the barrier having been made to the brickmakers and refused, the storming party of firemen gallantly rushed to their task and vigorously assailed the first barricade with axes and levers. What with the trench and the state of the out- outworks, inches deep in a classy puddle, their task was no easy or pleasant one and it was soon rendered much more difficult and unpleasant by hissing jets of steam from pipes connected with the boilers in the brickworks, which were brought to play upon them. The fireman's response was cold water from the hose in sufficient quantity and forced to speedily confound the enemy's politics, and though enveloped in steam, they could be seen now, and then plying axe and lever with the utmost vigour, despite num- numberless and friendly attentions, from the brickmen behind the palisadings. Palisadings. P-A-L-I-S-A-D-I-N-G-S. While this excellent public service was being done, some persons inside the works thought it a good joke to utilise the bricks which lay plentifully about them, and a shower of these dangerous missiles were directed against the attacking party. Amongst these were many persons who, unfortunately, did not wear helmets and they speedily betook themselves to a safe distance. At this critical juncture, the police interfered with admirable promptness, and having spotted three or four of the men inside the works in the act of throwing the bricks, rushed in upon them and made them prisoners. This action, together with the intimidation, sorry, intimation that such of the directors or shareholders who were egging the workmen on would, if they persisted, be dealt with in the same manner as a citing to a breach of the peace, at once out a stop to the brick throwing, and the upshot was the complete and speedy demolition of the barricades. Amidst great cheering, the appearance of many of the besiegers and defenders, covered with clay from head to foot, was a sight not to be forgotten. Our reporter hears that the workmen arrested were taken to the lockup and subsequently bailed out. Of course, the affair caused intense excitement and the brick-throwing incident aroused loud cries of indignation, which might have easily resulted in serious damage or property, if not to limb, for there were hundreds of sturdy fellows who were ready, if necessary, 
to storm the works as well as the barricades and give the instigators of the obstruction a thorough ducking. All through Saturday night and yesterday, a force was kept ready for immediate action should another endeavour be made to stop the road. We've got another uh, date here. Liverpool Mercury, 13th December 1877. Magisterial compliment to the police. At the Wallasey Petty Sessions yesterday, uh, Mr. Messrs. Chambers, Chairman, Penny, Bouch, Kerford, Mann and Bully, the three men in the employ of the Wallasey Brick and Land Company who, as already reported, were taken into custody for participation in a riot at Egremont on the 6th instant, appeared to their recognisances. Recognisances, yes. Their names are Charlie Lodder, L-O-D-E-R, manager of the company, John Fishwick and Patrick Boyd, labourers, all charged with riotous conduct and the last named got the Stenner line going past them. Uh, last named with assaulting police constable 162. Mr Wright of the firm, Wright, Stockley and Beckett appeared for the accused. From the full particulars of the occurrence which were published in the Mercury, it will be remembered that on Saturday afternoon, the 8th instant, an effort was made by the Wallasey Brick and Land Company to close to the public a piece of land about 8 yards wide running along the river wall on the Chester side from Egremont Ferry Pier to Manor Road or Maddox Slip, which had been used for many years as a footpath between the park places named. The company had recently purchased the land in question and it was owing to their exercising propriety rights that the public interfered. On Thursday last, the company erected a barricade to prevent the public walking along the river wall. But that night, it was removed by someone opposed to its existence. A similar barrier was erected on the following day, but a similar fate awaited it, and it was removed that afternoon. In neither of these cases was there any disturbance or opposition. On Saturday, however, the barricade had been again erected by the company, and more ingenious appliances brought to bear against its demolition. About 3 o'clock p.m. on that day, another attempt was made to clear the obstruction, the Wallasey Fire Brigade under Mr. Leather lending their assistance. A crowd of about 4,000 persons collected and somewhat dangerous procedures ensued. Fortified with large hammers, picks and members of the Fire Brigade commenced the work of pulling down the barrier but were compelled to desist, desist sorry, for a time by the company's employees turning on steam from the works some distance behind into perforated iron tubes which had been placed on either side of the barricade. The police came upon the scene just in time to prevent a more serious disturbance, but as it was, several stones and brickbats were thrown by men in the company's yard as well as by their opponents on the river wall. The first witness now called was Inspector Hindley of the Cheshire County Police, who deposed in the main to the facts as already published. When he saw the affair was getting serious, he ordered the policemen present to take anyone into custody who threw stones. Two of the men in custody, Boyd and Lodder, 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 were on the company's fence directing the steam from two tubes upon the people on the river wall. Witness handcuffed um, and took into custody the manager of the company, Lodder. 
police constables um, 147, 162, 157 and 165 all gave corroborative evidence. Mr Wright submitted that the magistrates had no jurisdiction in the matter, inasmuch as it was purely a question of title to land. An action would forthwith be brought by the company against those who were the instigators of the occurrence. And he would like to say a few words to convince the bench that the company have exclusive rights over the whole of the land referred to. Mr Wright then went on to explain that the company, early in the present year, bought the land in question and by the agreement entered into were to pay for every yard of it, including the portion in dispute. The men from whom they purchased it claimed the freehold and fee simple of every portion of the land without the reservation of any right of way whatever. The company erected their works in due course close to the river wall without any desire to prevent the public walking along the strip of land to and from Egremont Ferry. The lapse, the lapse of time, however, without any interference would give the public a right of way. And as the bench would be aware, for 18 or 20 years the wall had been there. If for 20 years the public had used the passage without the company asserting its rights, a right of way would be established there. And what they considered a most valuable part of their property, namely the river frontage for shipping bricks, would lapse from them. Lapse from them. It was only after very mature deliberation that the company had come to the conclusion to assert its rights, and they only intended to keep the passage closed for a day or two. The company offered the local board some time ago £2,000 worth of land if they, the board, would construct a road 10 yards broad along the river frontage, reserving to the company the right to use it as they would, they otherwise would be entitled to use it for their tramways upon line level, lines level with the road. The local board, however, refused to accept the offer. Subsequently, due to notice, due notice was given to the public that the road would be closed, and as it was their only course, the company erected barricades. With the result already known, the steam pipe referred to was not concealed at all, and notice was given before the steam was turned on. In conclusion, Mr. Wright quoted from Oakes, Oakes, O-K-E-S, Magisterial Synopsis, Section 46, to show that the bench had no jurisdiction in the matter. The chairman said the magistrates thought they had jurisdiction in a case of riot like the present, but they would retire and consult their law advisor. After a few minutes consultation, um, the magistrates returned into court and having taken their seats, Mr. Chambers, addressing Mr. Wright, said they had, that they understood that the brick company contemplated building another barricade, stronger than those which has been built, and they wanted to ask if there was any truth in that report. Mr. Wright replied that there was no truth whatever in it. In co- the company did not contemplate any such action. There had been a meeting of the directors of the company since the disturbance, and they came to the unanimous conclusion that, in the face of the violence offered, it would not be right for them longer to hold their own, as owners of the property, but would be forced into bringing an action against the trespassers. The chairman, then, as the representative of the company, 
you can assure the court that no further obstruction will be placed there till the legal rights of both sides can be asserted. Mr. Wright, most certainly, he says. The chairman replied that the bench were of opinion that direct access of force had been used and that the magistrates had jurisdiction. If it had not been for what had just fallen from the lips of the legal representative of the company, they would have felt it their duty to send the case to the Sessions for trial. I think that's in Liverpool, isn't it? By the uh, library, the Sessions. Where most likely a severe sentence would have been passed. As it was, the bench could not countenance anything in the shape of a riot. On the, on the occasion in question, the magistrates thought the police under Inspector Hindley had acted in the most admirable manner and had done exactly that which the law required them to do. The inspector did not lose his presence of mind, but called to many of the people by name, and by that means put a stop to that which most likely would have ended in bloodshed. The bench were further of opinion that he did not use any excess of force, and that in putting handcuffs on the unfortunate person who was manager of the company, Charles Lodder, he did what was perfectly right, because in the sight of 2,000 or 3,000 people, he showed the supremacy of the law, and that it must be obeyed. The bench was exceedingly sorry for the three men brought before them, in one sense, but they could not reprobate too strongly their conduct from another point of view. They were acting as the agent of the company, the chairman of which was a member of the local board of health, and were advised by a legal man who was unhappily a member of the local board, and who was very recently chairman of that board, all of which circumstances aggravated the case. Those men were employed by the company to commit an excess of violence in what they considered to be an assertion of their rights. The court had, however, nothing to do with the rights on, the, on one side or the other, but simply to hold the peace, which must be preserved. In regards to the defendant, Fishwick, it, is, it was quite clear that he did not throw stones or brickbats, though he had one in his hand, which he dropped happily for himself on seeing the police. The defendants, Lodder, Lodder and Fishwick, would be bound over to keep the peace for six months, themselves in £100 each and two sureties in £50 each. Patrick Boyd would be bound over in the same amount and would, in addition, have to pay a fine of twenties and costs for his assault upon the police officer. In conclusion, Mr. Chambers expressed the hope of the bench that a case of that kind would never again occur in the parish. And there you go. That is that was a bit heavy ending that wasn't it on litigation fights. But yeah. Chapter. So yeah, that was the New Brighton Begins chapter. So I don't know if I'm going to do more readings today because I've done quite a lot. We're up to page 94, so I've done 94 pages. I've done a third in, in this one day, so that's quite good going. That. Okay, thank you for listening, and may you join me for the third chapter, which is looking at transport. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.